there's a lot of things that are called misogyny these days that aren't misogyny. Andrew Tate is a misogynist. <laughs> Dave Portnoy is a misogynist. You know, I've spent my career taking on some of the cultural baddies, you know, some of the most prominent intellectuals in the world, some of them in public debates, some of them behind the scenes. And I've come to realize that ideas define everything that we do. With an academic degree, you're trained to be a researcher and writer to the point that it's annoying. I mean, but I'm grateful for it. I'm not talking about books I've not read. I'm not talking about papers I've not read. Whether I agree with them or not actually isn't the point. Uh, there are quite a few books that I would read that I would say are actually evil books. Donald Trump, when he was in a divorce with his first wife, she said he has a copy of Mein Kampf next to his bed. I wish more people did. If the German people had bothered to read that book rather than just have it on their shelf, we might have avoided the Holocaust. If more people read the Quran, they'd be wiser to what Islam actually is, what they actually believe. If people bothered to read, as I have, the writings of Klaus Schwab and the various contributors to the World Economic Forum and the ideas that are driving the globalists, I read them because I want to understand their mentality. I cut out the middleman. I go straight to the ideology. Everything in your life is being defined by either your ideas or the ideas of the people around you. And each episode, we're going to be digging into a different idea that appears in the culture. This is Ideas Have Consequences with me, Larry Alex Taunton. I recently posted a question on Twitter asking, would you rather have sex with a transsexual, which is a legitimate 10, or a woman, which is a legitimate one. And everyone's sitting there clicking woman, 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 because they think they're gonna be gay if they do anything else, but they're not actually thinking about the question. When I say a one and a 10, I mean Megan Fox with a dick, that's the tranny. Or Hulk Hogan with a that's the girl. This is the question I'm asking. Megan Fox or Hulk Hogan? So you're thinking, well, I don't want to be gay, so I just I clicked the girl, the number one, did it? You're gonna f Hulk Hogan. Okay, there's a but he's got mustache and muscles and shit. he's all hairy, big dude, six foot five. It's pretty gay to me. That sounds pretty gay. I don't care if it's that is gay. Well, for one thing, what I hear in that is that <laughs> Andrew Tate considers beards and mustaches more masculine than penises. So Weighing Hulk Hogan with a beard and a mustache or a penis. The beard and mustache are more masculine than the penis. Um, <laughs> um, <clears throat> Andrew Tate, it's interesting because you watch that. And um, part of it, he's just being inflammatory and getting clicks. I mean, he's getting us to dance to his tune right now by posting nonsense like that. And he knows it's nonsense. He's smart enough to know that. <clears throat> getting us to react um, to what he has to say here. But I'm actually more, what I'm more interested, if you watch the full video of him, he's kind of walking around while somebody clearly is following him around with a camera. And this, this, thought experiment, I think he calls it, um, goes on for quite some time. And he's, and Tate thinks he's very clever. He thinks he's very smart. I, I don't. 
I'm not very impressed with Andrew Tate. Um, he might have been a marvelous kickboxer, UCF fighter, or whatever he was. I don't know. Um, he has impressive packs. You know, I I don't I can't compete with that. But um, Tate. What he does is he's, he talks like an auctioneer. He's talking so rapidly that that is taken to be, you know, ha have depth, that he's a very intelligent and deep guy. No, no, no. He's just rattling off nonsense so quickly that you're, you know, you're, you're, you're left in his vapor trail, you know, trying to, to untangle the word salad. Um, I would reject his premise to begin with because, first of all, that's not an option. I don't, I'm not forced into his, his alternate universe world to choose between a vagina wielding Hulk Hogan or Megan Fox with a penis. I, I refuse to enter into his world. I know of no such men or women. <clears throat> so that's one thing. Second thing is Andrew Tate. Um, strikes me as a guy with some serious issues. And I, I, I say this knowing that Tate quotes his father a lot, who presumably is deceased. But he quotes his father's father is almost like a prop in the Andrew Tate play, the ongoing Andrew Tate play. I also think it's interesting that he's always putting quote marks around his father. I mean, lengthy dialogues with his father that he has quote marks around as, as if he has a complete transcript of the conversation, the way it went. Uh, if his father is the way he portrays him, <clears throat> he was a monstrous father. And that's a conversation for another time. Um, whether he was or not, Andrew Tate always comes off to me as a man who has daddy issues. He has daddy issues, and he has masculinity issues. Yes, Andrew Tate, I said you have masculinity issues. I get it that you are not interested in the milk toast, uh, modern, Western, touchy-feely man. I, I get it, nor am I. Not interested in that. Um, but you're an exaggerated caricature of masculinity. I see recently this post of yours where you're sitting there um, I don't know, you're on a yacht or something, a ship, I don't know, and you're flanked by, uh, a, 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 I think, maybe two or three silicone-implanted women on one side and two or three silicone-implanted women on the other side, and you're sitting in the middle like you're Xerxes, and these are your playthings. Maybe they are your playthings. Maybe they're foolish enough to, to be your playthings. Um, you appear to want women who are just... One-dimensional. They don't have any depth. They certainly don't have any intellect. They don't have any ability to push against you. They just want your stuff. Do they love you? Doesn't seem like it. Do you love them? Certainly not. You wouldn't treat them the way um, you do. They appear, again, as props in your play. Your father appears as a prop in the ongoing Andrew Tate play. Uh, you posture as an intellectual? Clearly not. Uh, you posture as a model for masculinity, clearly not. Your philosophy is what you call Tateism. Tateism. What is Tateism? It's nonsense. It's a non-philosophy. It's something that is designed to appeal to young men who are rootless, uh, who are rudderless, 
uh, who are lacking father figures. And so you want to put yourself forward as this sort of individual. Now, I will say that I've often, from time to time, I've kind of rooted for you. And I have because um, occasionally you stumble upon truth. You occasionally stumble upon truth, usually in response to attacks from the left. And on that, whenever you're saying true things, I'm with you on that. Um, and I'm certainly uh, no advocate of leftist ideology. But it's interesting because your world consists of, of two forced choice possibilities. There's, on the one hand, there's Andrew Tate, who is a Hulk Hogan with a vagina. And on the other side, it's, it's leftist ideology, which is Megan Fox with a penis. And I refuse either one because I think there are other options on the table. I don't want either one. I don't want you. I don't want them. And I hope that young men see that there are other options as well. So that's kind of the way I feel about Andrew Tate. Uh, I hope sometime to meet him. I'd love to, dis I'd love to discuss his religious convictions. He says he's a Muslim. Um, in what sense is he a Muslim? Does he does he model his life after Muhammad? Does he model his uh, his practices as after Muhammad? That's what he's supposed to do. And any young men who are following him should know that Muhammad Muhammad was a rapist. Muhammad was a murderer. He's a marauder. He's a man who fought more than eighty battles, um, aggressive warfare, not in defense of anything, not in defense of principles, not in defense of freedom. Um, Muhammad pushed a religion, and Andrew Tate says he's a, an advocate of a religion that says that all non-believers um, must convert, pay a tax, or die. Convert, pay a tax, or die. That's Islam. If you model your life as Muhammad, as you're supposed to do, read the Hadith, as you're supposed to do, read the Quran, as you're supposed to do, those are the options. I'm not about talking about the fuzzy, westernized Muslims who don't read their own holy literature, or model them their lives after, after Muhammad. I'm, I'm talking about the real hardcore ones. The ones we call radicals are actually just Orthodox Muslims. That's what they are. And um, I'm curious where Andrew Tate falls on that spectrum. Not, not real sure, but I would enjoy having a conversation with Andrew Tate about what it is that he actually believes. And I'll tell you this, Muhammad was not a fan of Tateism. He would not worship at that altar. He would demand exactly the opposite. While God has created, you know, it says male and female, he created them. So he created us each with a lane. Our God is a God of grace, and um, there's, there's some movement within that. And by that, I'm not talking fluidity sexually and you know, but, but rather, the Lord didn't give us a cookie cutter that we're expected to follow. My expression of my masculinity may be different than your expression of masculinity or, or anyone else's um, in this room or, uh, or elsewhere. Um, you know, the Lord has given us unique characteristics. Does, do all men have to love hunting? Do they all have to love fishing? Well, I hate fishing, and I'm not going to go sit in a tree stand at, at three in the morning, you know, waiting to, um, to kill deer. Uh, some men like to do that. I have no problem with that, none whatsoever. But, uh, you know, the, the point being that our masculinity takes different forms. It, uh, but 
but we know it when we see it. We know it when we see it. We know masculinity when we see it, and we know a lack of masculinity when we see it. And that, I think, is the more important thing. And so Scripture has defined for us, again, I say, you know, women in one lane, men in another, they're, they're equal but not the same. And that's an important thing for us to understand. God has created men and women equal but with very different roles. And used to, you saw women entering into male spaces, like say into men's sports or the army or things of this nature. Now, all of a sudden, it's men entering into women's spaces. It's going in the other direction. And it's having more disastrous consequences than what we were seeing when it was women entering into male spaces. And that is because men can dominate in female spaces. I mean, take sports, for instance, very easily. You know, so-called Leah Thomas, um, you know, lap people in the pool. He's got, you know, roughly a third the lung capacity, roughly twice the strength of a female. This is biological. It is a fact. It is the way God has created men and women. So we know when we see masculinity and when we see a lack of masculinity. So I'm, I am sympathetic to those men, at least some of them, the impulse that says that I find um, not me personally, but some young men who might find an Andrew Tate attractive to them because they're rebelling against the cultural norm or standard that is being forced upon them, and it is being forced upon them. Men are by nature more aggressive. Aggressive doesn't have to be a negative thing. God has created them to be defenders, defenders of their family, defenders of the weak, defenders of their homes, defenders of their nation. Uh, God has intended them to be these things, and, and as a result, he's given them separate characteristics. But when those things are, when they are taught, when little boys are taught that their desire to go, and to make noise and to jump around, and I remember a decade, excuse me, a generation ago, James Dobson saying something that I thought was really quite insightful. He said that school... He had been against homeschooling, like in the 70s and 80s. And in the 90s, he said, I'm wrong. I'm wrong. I was wrong. And uh, he said, you know, public schools are designed for girls. Boys are not engineered to sit still for six to eight hours every day and to raise their hand every time they want to go to the bathroom and they have something to say. It is not in their DNA. It's why Ridland became so popular in... in, in um, not in my generation, but um, with millennials, you know, pumping them full of Ritalin. Teachers loved it because Junior would sit there in class drooling. He was no problem at all. You could maintain him. He's drugged. And why is he drugged? Because we decided his God-given nature was an evil within the classroom and should be suppressed. When he's not actually being naughty, he's just being a little boy. He's looking out the window because he wants to go outside and play. He wants adventure. He wants to go out and bang against his, his friends in a football game. He, he wants to, uh, um, to roughhouse. He, he wants to do all those things because that's the way he is. That's the way he's been designed. I am grateful in my own generation. This started happening a little after my generation. If it was happening in my generation, it didn't happen where I was going to school. 
One of the problems with education is that teachers are poorly paid, and the result is there are very few male teachers because they're typically the breadwinners. So they're looking to go to a more lucrative field where they can make more money and support their families. So the result is that education is overwhelmingly dominated by women. Sometimes they're women who don't understand little boys and don't want to understand little boys and thus try to fit them into the feminine mold. Now, these days, they're literally trying to put them into the feminine mold. But in my generation, women like that weren't literally trying to do it. They just tried to make them behave the way the girls did. Girls, school, girls excel, vastly outpacing boys. The dropout rate in, um, in test scores, the dropout rate among boys is vastly higher. It is epidemic among boys. Now, when I was a kid, even my female teachers, I'm grateful for this, would think, I don't really understand why you want to read these adventure stories, but I know that it's kind of healthy for you to do so. So, you know, um, the class assigned books that I might read, I'm talking about in elementary school, were stories of, of heroes and battles and great deeds and explorers and things like that, the kinds of things that little boys were interested in. Even the female teachers would kind of encourage that in the little boys because they'd understand it's good for them to do this. This is part of who they are. But how much harder must it be for a generation that comes later and where the whole system is planned with malice a forethought against you. Everything runs against your impulses. Some of our impulses are sinful and need to be restrained. But not all of them. And if little boys are in schools where they're taught that they're never allowed to express those male interests, that the desire to win in competition is wrong, everybody gets a prize. The desire to engage in a certain level of controlled violence, and I mean violence. Boys like violence. I'm not talking about, <laughs> I'm not talking about killing people. I'm talking about deliberately banging into each other, playing football, um, rounding third base, and your buddy is standing in the baseline, and I'm going to run right over him and then laugh about it later. The, these, this is the impulse of boys. We would get on our bicycles and ram into each other, our big wheels, and smash into each other. This, this is not sinful behavior. Moms and dads, don't panic. Your little boys are wired this way. Channel it in the right direction. Keep them from killing each other, and you'll end up with, <laughs> with something interesting as a result of this. But see, now little boys are told none of this stuff is useful. The desire to get, we boxed in PE. We had a six week, you had six weeks installments of various things. One of them was boxing. We beat the snot out of each other in boxing. <laughs> and you got to pick who you're going to box. And you pick your buddy. And you both would get in the ring and just wail on each other. You're wearing the head thing and you've got the, these days, probably our PE teacher go to jail. Those were healthy things. They were healthy things. They're teaching us self-defense. 
They're giving us an outlet that's controlled and supervised for our natural aggression. And they're teaching you sportsmanship. They're also teaching you how to lose. You know, win all those boxing matches. Guys bigger, quicker than you and whales on you. And you come away going, you know, I, I like that very much. But now little boys and middle school boys and high school boys are all told all that stuff is terrible. So then comes along Andrew Tate, big, tough Andrew Tate, ultimate fighter or whatever he is, all tatted up with his impressive pecs. They are impressive. Biceps. His head shaved even looks muscular. But then he's giving them a philosophy to go with it. I've got women, cars, power. I'm the man you want to be like. I don't know. If I was in the kind of schools that we have today, and I saw Andrew Tate on my Instagram or Facebook or TikTok or Twitter page, I'd probably give him a follow. I might, might have the sense to know that there's a lot of nonsense that he's pushing but I would give a like to a lot of those other things that feel like they're counterculture, cultural, and in the face of these people I don't like who are forcing their ideology on me because I don't like it and I want to push against it. And Andrew Tate is doing it for me. That's what I think is driving that. And I get it. I completely get it. It's also why a lot of young men are drawn to Islam. Because Islam to them feels, Islam to them feels a lot more masculine than Christianity. I get that too. There's a kind of milquetoast Christianity, a sissy Christianity, that emphasizes what we would more closely associate with the feminine virtues. And Jesus was loving. He was nurturing. He was gentle. But not all the time. And if you emphasize those characteristics over and against his characteristics that we would tend to associate with the masculine, courage, honor, duty, fearlessness, then you're, you're not just simply teaching feminine um, characteristics, you're actually teaching a false Christ it, it's, it's not who he actually is. You're setting them up for failure because when they encounter the real God, either in life or one day in person, he's going to be very different than that. And, and the God of the Bible is presented with strong masculine characteristics and we're to honor and respect those characteristics. And that should be the model for Little boys, I've often wondered if our churches, and by the way, the, the feminine Jesus was pushed long before I was born. Churches I grew up in were pushing the feminine Jesus. Um, I've forgotten the name of the author, his book, Why Men Hate Church. If you've ever read this book, it's a, I think his name's David Murrow. If I'm wrong, forgive me. But David Murrow, I think, is the author, Why Men Hate Church. And it is because 
the men I know don't use the kind of language that often evangelical churches use in presenting Jesus. Shine, Jesus, shine. I, I find myself going through that song going, is there anybody else find this kind of weird? Jesus, I want a love song. How does it go? I want a love song for you or... You know, this kind of this kind of language that feels strange. It's not the way I talk. It's not the way guys talk. It's not the way we engage one another. It's that kind of language that's used frequently. And I can see young men who are by nature, not that, looking across the street at something else, whether it's an Andrew Tate tweet, or it is a Muslim cleric who is pushing duty and dying for a cause. Boys are attracted to that. It's hard for people to understand that. Boys are attracted to the idea. My father, underage, joined the United States Navy on the heels of World War II, 1946 because he was inspired by all the men of World War II. And he wanted to be tested physically, mentally, and he wanted to be a part of something that was bigger than himself, that he believed in passionately. That's why a young man like him, since this is, again, this is something that often is not understood about males, you might think he would choose to go the easiest course. No, he didn't. When he went in, there was a new, there was a new um, opportunity. They're called paratroopers, the princes of the air. He said, I want to be one of those. They said, all right, young man, we'll test you. We're going to push you to the limits. I'm in. I'm, I want that. So he became a part of the 82nd Airborne, the elite. And then a new, a new... Um, element within the United States Army was created, and that's special forces. They came along to the 82nd Airborne, and they said, um, we're going to create something called the Rangers. They will be the elite of the elite. I know the 82nd Airborne is the elite, but now we're going to have something more elite than the 82nd Airborne. The 82nd Airborne is made up of the most elite members of the United States Army, the Rangers are going to be made up of the most elite elements of the 82nd Airborne. Who's volunteering? He said, me. I'll do it. 20. Why did he do it? Because he wanted to be tested. They said, you know what we're going to do? We're going to, we're going to do things to you so dangerous. Might kill you. Okay. I'm in. Young men long for these kinds of things. They want adventure. They want you know, you know what the advertising campaign of my youth for the United States Army used to say? <laughs> it's funny. We show all these guys at dark getting up. So funny. You find the commercial on YouTube, and it shows you know tanks being you know pushed out of the back of a C-130 or something like that, and these guys parachuting, and just as they're landing, they're all now starting to have a cup of coffee as the sun comes up, and it says, "United States Army, we do more before 9 a.m. than most people do all day." that's a recipe for a young man going, <laughs> you think that makes me want to join? I don't want to get up before 9 a.m. But the mentality of young men of the era was such that they go, 
That's an army I want to be a part of. Challenge me. Push me. So the Andrew Tates of the world offer that. And um, Islam offers that. The army used to offer it, less so these days. So we are seeing genuine manifestations of toxic masculinity. But toxic masculinity takes the form of a feminine masculinity, the kind that's being pushed, it's a feminine masculinity, or it is a hyper-exaggerated masculinity of an Andrew Tate or what we call radical Islam. They're not genuinely masculine, um, but they're exaggerated forms of it. In saying that the characteristics of Jesus that are, are most strongly emphasized by the church these days um, tend to be associated with the feminine. I was careful in the language that I use insofar as I'm not saying that men can't have those characteristics. Jesus did. When we say that Jesus was gentle or nurturing or kind or loving, we tend to associate those characteristics with women, but not exclusively. Men have them too, but they're, they're most strongly expressed in women. Uh, naturally speaking, they are more strong. And listen, any father knows this. Any father knows this. Any mother knows this. And it is because when my children, when they were little, and I'm not unique in this. Dads will tell you this. When Junior, if, if Lori and I are standing there together and one of my children skins his knee, Sasha came later. She was, you know, 11 when we adopted her. But, um, but our boys, our three boys, we're sitting there and they're on a playground, let's say, and something happens. They get hurt. You know who they can run to? Mom. Sometimes it kind of hurt my feelings. Like, okay. Why? Because they know mom is, it's instinctive. They know that mom is more nurturing and more patient with that. Because I'm going to get to a point and go, okay, we're getting a little carried away here. You're fine. You're fine. Come on. Dust off. Get on back out there. You're okay. Uh, when I was a kid, um, that was true. When I wanted to have a serious conversation about a problem, I went to my mom, not my dad. I would go to my dad when I had a problem that needed fixing. I need intervention. I need something done. That's not mom. That's dad. He's that ax behind the glass in case of emergency break because that's he's he's going to you know men by nature want to fix things. Um and women are nurturers. Or I might go to my mother if I want her to move my dad to do something. Hey, he won't do X, but mom, can you be my advocate on his behalf? You know, so I think most people can relate to this. And in other words, if you think about your own life growing up, you know this is true. Women are by nature, it's not to say there aren't plenty of men who are very nurturing by nature or very loving by nature. I'm just saying that generally speaking, Certain characteristics we would apply to men as being more dominantly expressed in men as opposed to women. Um, and that just simply, uh, you know, tends to be the case. And, as, and that's the reason why I would say, you know, think about how your children express those things. I also experienced that in after my accident. You know, I was in the hospital. I was in the hospital for quite some time. I was in ICU 
And when I had men come to offer me comfort, it usually wasn't comforting. And it's because men come into the hospital room and you're, you know, you're on oxygen and tubes are going in and out of my face and I'm smashed and I'm laying there. I can feel their discomfort because they don't know what to do. They instinctively want to fix it. And so they usually relate silly stories to fill the dead air. You know, there was this time when I broke a rib. Yeah, not applicable here. I just broke 19 places in my back and all my ribs. Don't want to hear about the time you broke your rib. <laughs> Women were by, were by nature nurturers. Women instinctively did things to comfort they didn't come in. Usually, there are exceptions. They didn't usually come in trying to offer a bunch of answers. They come in and hold your hand. They come in and tenderly stroke your cheek. They would say kind words. What can I do to make you more comfortable? And they expressed empathy. Men want to fix things. And I know this because I see this in myself. When a friend starts telling me about a problem in his life, my mind immediately goes into, all right, here's what we're going to do. And when people are hurting, often you discover that's not, they're not coming, they're not looking for a solution. They're wanting you to listen. And women are usually better at that than men. I don't, can't tell you the number of friends who never came to see me in the hospital and would say to me later, hey, I'm sorry I didn't come see you in the hospital, but I hate hospitals. I'd say, well, gosh, I loved it. It's not about you. It was about me. I don't care whether you're comfortable with hospitals. People say, I didn't go to funerals. I don't like funerals. Well, did you care about that person? Did you honor them? It's not about you. It's about the celebration of that life. But in emergency break glass, and most, I like the way one comedian put it some years ago. I think her name was Pam Stone. She could be pretty funny. And she said, you know, men are like bicycle helmets. For the most part, they just look silly. But they're pretty handy in an accident <laughs> uh, or an emergency. And there's truth in that. You know, um, daughters and sons, they come to dad, generally speaking, when there is an emergency and they're needing intervention, they're needing something to be accomplished. My boys, when my boys want to share their feelings and spill their guts, they call mom. It's just what they do. And so those virtues, or excuse me, well, I guess you could say they can be virtuous. Those characteristics of men and women, God has given them um, to male and female. There's some overlap. There's a Venn diagram there. But... Um, he's given them for a purpose and thank, thank the good Lord that he did it because we need both. And the absence of both in the raising of our children is having a deeply detrimental, a detrimental effect on little boys and little girls who are absent one or the other, or often both. I'll relate a little story that I think illustrates this. I was recently in South America, 
And um, we were, you know, had some children from a local foundation um, come and enjoy the pool at the hotel. The hotel was kind enough to let us bring them in so that they come and enjoy the, you know, what they otherwise would never have access to because these are children from very, very poor circumstances. One of the boys, he uh, is effectively an orphan. And um, I had told him when they came in, you know, listen, I'm really busy. I'm on a deadline. I got to try to get something out. You guys go have some fun at the pool and enjoy yourself. And after a few minutes, I thought, you know, I should go check on them. So I go and look, see what they're doing. And one of them is looking longingly at a father who is playing with his son. His son is on a float. His son looks like he's about five and he's bouncing it and splashing the boy and the boy's giggling and laughing and he's pushing him around the pool and they're making lots of noise. He slings his child off into the water and the kind of things you do with little boys. And this little orphan boy is following behind, bouncing just above the water on his tiptoes behind them, longingly watching what they're doing, wanting to be a part of what they have, probably not even fully understanding that he's doing it or even why he's doing it, but it's something he doesn't have. And so I thought, you know, I need to play with these children. And so I went and found a rock, a little, I couldn't find, I didn't have any change. And so I went and found a little smooth stone and um, I said to him, hey, Juan, um, come here. I'm going to take this rock and I'm going to start throwing it in the water and I'll time you, see how quickly you can get to it and bring it back. And we started to play and then some other children joined in and this little boy giggled and giggled and giggled way more than my own children would have because my own children would have been used to that kind of interaction and they would have enjoyed it. But after a little while, they'd say, ah, we want to go play Marco Polo or go get an ice cream, you know, or something. But this little boy would have played this game all day long. And his face just, he was just shining with joy at this. And it's all due to the absence of a father not have a father in his life to do these things. Do you know what shirt that little boy was wearing? Get out of the pool and he puts his shirt on and it's a shirt with Pablo Escobar on it. If you don't know who Pablo Escobar was, look him up. Pablo Escobar was a drug kingpin in Colombia. This was in Colombia, South America. A drug kingpin who murdered untold thousands of people, all in the name of his own selfish pursuits. But many South Americans, particularly Colombian boys, see him as a kind of Robin Hood figure, which he was not. He was a murderer, he was a thug, and he eventually got what he deserved, which is a bullet right in his ear. But this little fatherless boy saw Pablo Escobar, Pablo freaking Escobar, as a masculine role model. It's what was being held up to him that he grabbed with both hands. And that's what Andrew Tate is. And I'm saying Andrew Tate is a 
you know, genocidal maniac. I'm just saying that Andrew Tate projects that same kind of hyper-masculinity that's toxic insofar as it doesn't appear to value women. It doesn't appear to value actual values. And it appears to be just all about Andrew Tate. I mean, imagine naming... I mean, we have Calvinism, but Calvin didn't name it Calvinism. <laughs> we have Lutheranism, but Lutheran, uh, Luther didn't call it Lutheranism. We have Thomism, which we were just discussing a bit ago, named after the philosophy of Thomas Aquinas, Thomism. But he didn't name it Thomism. What kind of arrogant ass must you be to say, I'm trying to promote Tateism, Tauntonism? This is Andrew Tate. Young people, young men, don't follow him. He's not worth following. I agree you don't want to follow uh, you know, some of the other. Uh, Dave Portnoy is another one. Dave Portnoy of um, Barstool Sports. He's just an American version of Andrew Tate. Same thing. He's just as much of a pig as Andrew Tate is. He's less intelligent, but uh, same thing. And a lot of young men follow him because it's all about sexual conquest, masculinity, and I do whatever I want to do. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. I think real men acknowledge authority, proper authorities in their lives. Real men stand against authorities when they're evil authorities. But you don't just go through life running over everybody and living life selfishly and then being so foolish enough to call it Tateism. I'm going to call myselfish. I'm going to call myself. I'm going to give my selfishness a name. It already has a name. Sin. Selfishness. Being vulgar disgusting, and a misogynist. There's a lot of things that are called misogyny these days that aren't misogyny. Andrew Tate is a misogynist. <laughs> Dave Portnoy is a misogynist. Where we are in the culture today, it's very interesting because um, I have for a very long time been fascinated with Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. Now, I'm not going to read it here. I'll let you read it at your own time. But I've been fascinated with it from the standpoint of history. And it's because the Apostle Paul, who wrote the book of Romans, again, Romans 1, verses 18 through 32, he is laying out an argument for where a culture will go once it suppresses belief in God, okay? So he's saying atheism has consequences. Ideas have consequences. And he says that... that it begins with thanklessness, which actually is kind of fascinating to me, that a lack of gratitude to God for the good things that we have in life leads to a certain societal degradation. But he says it, it, it starts with, with thanklessness, which eventually leads to a suppression of belief in God. And then he lays out where that goes. Here's the things that naturally follow from that. And the first, he says, is worship of nature, birds and animals and creeping things. You'll start worshiping nature. Once you no longer believe in God, 
It's just a matter of time when a society rejects belief in God in toto. It leads to a worship of nature. Then he says the next thing that happens is homosexuality. He says men exchange their natural lusts, their natural desires. For women, they exchange them for unnatural desires for each other. And he says, and likewise, women do the same. So worship of nature, homosexuality. And then the third is, he says, it leads to a debased mind. A debased mind where you're willing to consider almost any, anything. You're willing to do almost anything, like say maybe call men, women, women, men. Cut the penises off of little boys and conduct experiments on them, which is basically what they're doing with irreversible adolescent sex change operations. This is astonishingly evil stuff. That's the result of a debased mind. So the picture, hence the reason I've been fascinated with it for decades, this has fascinated me. Who was Paul talking about? Because he's... He says, they gave up. They did this. He's not simply speaking forward. He's saying, this is something that's happened. And he says, those three things, which are like cataracts in a waterfall. You go, step one, worship of nature. Step two, in the waterfall, the second cataract, homosexuality. Step three, right off the cliff is a debased mind. Well, if you read Ezekiel chapters 8 through 11, which are arguably the most difficult chapters in all of Scripture, um, you see that this is what the Hebrews themselves did, uh, word for word. I mean, it's, it's what they did. But I think Paul's argument goes beyond that. Because I think Paul is saying it's not simply what they did, it's what any society will do when they reject God. It's not that they might go this direction or they might go that direction. They will go this direction. These three things are inevitable. When Lori and I were in the process of adopting um, Sasha, we were required by international law to, um, by the Hague Convention, international adoption law, we were required to have 30 hours of adoption education. So we went to the University of Alabama, Birmingham's adoption clinic, you know, X number of Saturdays in a row where we would hear these depressing lectures, just an avalanche of depressing information on, you know, adopted children, fetal alcohol syndrome and HIV and on and on and on. And I, I can't remember exactly how the matching section went, but it was something like this. They would say, they would point out, they would say, you know, if you have a child that is sniffing all the time or scratching until he or she bleeds or hoarding, they could tell you exactly what had happened to that child. It went, again, something like this, like a child that has been left in dark spaces all the time will sniff and scratch until they bleed. A child that has dyslexia, is a child that has been left on its back, staring probably in a nursery with 30 other children. The, the woman who was responsible for didn't have time to get them out. 
of the crib and let them do this, which turns out to be pretty important because the right and left hemispheres of the brain begin to communicate as a result of just crawling on the ground. So children who are left in the crib staring at a ceiling, their eyes never develop, first of all, that, and they don't develop the muscles to focus on something that's moving, something that's close, something that's far away. In other words, it was almost like someone had, like these children had a flip-top head, and somebody had opened their head and took a screwdriver and did this and closed it up, and you could predict the result. Put a child into a small set, they'll do this. Leave them in a crib, they'll do this. Do this to them, they'll do that. Don't let them have much food, they'll hoard. Take everything from the refrigerator, put it under the bed. They don't even understand their own behaviors. It's inevitable, they would essentially say. Well, this is what Paul is here saying. These certain behaviors yield certain results. Or this idea results in this consequence. But then, interestingly enough, he says that when you get to a debased mind, he's indicating in 1 Corinthians 1 Corinthians 11, verses 1 through 16, Paul says something kind of unusual. And he says this. He's making an argument for, from creation, and he's talking about the different roles of men and women. And he says this. In fact, I may even have it just right here. Bear with me. He says this. Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For her hair is given to her for a covering. Now that struck me, that has forever struck me as an odd biblical injunction. What's going on? What's happening here? That's 1 Corinthians 11, verses 1 through 16. He's, he's talking about, and just in case you think this is cultural, it isn't cultural. Paul says, does not nature itself teach you that if a woman cuts her hair short, it is a disgrace but that her long hair is a glory to her. Doesn't nature teach you that? He says, doesn't it also teach you that if a man wears his hair long? It's a disgrace. Well, that's interesting. Why does that only mention that one time in that one passage? Well, it's because of what was happening in Corinth. And I didn't put this together until I went to Corinth. I've been to Corinth a couple of times. Corinth is very strategically, you know, if you're going from Athens to Sparta, You'd have to go through Corinth. It's just right there, connecting the the uh, the Pel Greek Peloponnesus of of Athens. Excuse me, of um, of, of of Greece. And um, there's a canal that runs right through it that was uh, started by the Greeks and finished by the Romans. It's a very international city, and that's because traffic, foot traffic, was going from north to south and south to north, and then um, navigation was going through that canal in both directions. So you had people from all over the Mediterranean who gathered there, and it became a kind of sin city. You know, it reminds me of Murray Head's old, you know, one night in Bangkok makes a hard man crumble. Is it the animals who sang House of Rising Sun? There is a house in New Orleans they call the rising sun. It's been the ruin of many a poor boy, and God, I know I'm one. 
That was Corinth. There's an ancient proverb that said, Corinth is not for every man. It was because Corinth was ruinous to the souls of men. And it was because Corinth had moved beyond mere prostitution to weird kinds of things that we're now seeing in our own culture. And you know what I observed in the museums of Corinth? <laughs> that, I, that suddenly I was like, this makes sense. The temple of Aphrodite dominates Corinth. Aphrodite was the goddess of love and lust. And you see, Corinth's landscape, like much of Greece, is kind of odd. It's not these mountains like the Rockies. It's more like a gumdrop hill, gumdrop mountain. And sitting atop it is the temple to Aphrodite. And she was served by all the temple prostitutes who'd wander down into the city or men would wander up to her precincts to get their fix. And what you notice is that the statuary of Aphrodite, she's depicted with hair shorter than mine. She's depicted quite masculine. Do you see where I'm going with this? This is where we are in our own culture. What ends up happening, says the Apostle Paul in Romans 1, and then he's kind of indicating it in 1 Corinthians 11, is once you suppress belief in God, the result is you go move through this process of, of, of first the suppression of the truth to the perversion of the truth, and then ultimately to the perversion of nature itself. So that you go from saying there is no God to saying, you know what, men can be women, women can be men. You countenance all kinds of weird possibilities that to any rational person make no sense at all. But what happens is you've severed your tie in suppressing belief in God. You've severed your tie with the absolute, which is to say you've severed your tie with reality. Now, some people who are listening to this will say, well, I'm an atheist and I, I haven't severed my tie with rash. I don't believe any of that stuff. That's because you've inhaled deeply of a Judeo-Christian ethic that still serves to put guardrails on your worldview, even if you don't know it. It just does. It's the foundation of what you believe. You believe that the universe is rational and can be studied and uh, that there's order in nature, not because your atheistic worldview tells you that, because it doesn't. You believe it because a Christian, a Judeo-Christian worldview has says there is a God, he is a God of order, and his nature is order, and thus can be studied and understood. That's why Christianity gave rise to, the, to science and to the laws that we have in the Western world. Not to, to the rise of law. I didn't say that it led to the rise of law. It led to the, law, led to the rise of law as we understand it in the Western world, which is infinitely better than Hammurabi's code or those that dominate the Islamic world. Very different kind of law. And so Paul is saying once, once you've suppressed that, once you've severed that tie, it leads to the perversion of nature and weird things. And part of that is, is it leads to the destruction of the two lanes for the sexes. They begin to merge into some kind of weird thing. And men and women begin to take on odd characteristics, such as Andrew Tate even positing a question about 
a Hulk Hogan with a vagina and a Megan Fox? That's the kind of question some idiot philosopher would have offered you at a, at a, um, a, a, a fortune-telling booth in Corinth. That's not the kind of question that would be posed in a rational society. But it would be in a place like that because that's, those kinds of things are actually happening. And so you begin to count, well, I wonder, would I prefer to sleep with Megan Fox with a penis or Hulk Hogan with a vagina? It's not the world I live in. It's not the world that I choose to live in, ideologically speaking, where I even accept the question is a valid question. But that's what was happening in Corinth. And hence the reason Paul is saying the outward, the outward appearance is a signal of the inward person as well. It's saying something about your mentality. While men and women are equal, they are um, given very different roles. And we instinctively, we intuitively understand the difference in those roles.